The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul, we are back. We have done it again. We just got finished recording an episode on medical myths with Dr. Douglas Powell. And with us, you know, Stuart's not here, but with us is the great Dr. Justin Lee Burke. Justin, you want to say hi to the audience? So happy to fill in for Stuart. Grateful to hear everyone and see everyone again. Uh, It's great to see you guys. Yeah, big shoes to fill. I think you did it. I think you did an okay job, though. Uh, Paul, how about you tell the audience a little bit about what we do on this show, and then Justin can tell them about our fantastic guest. Yep, happy to. As always, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. And as per usual, we're, this seems to be a theme recently. We're finding out all the things that we've been doing wrong our entire careers, but did not know that we were doing them incorrectly. Um, but I'm going to let uh, the great Dr. Burke uh, talk more about our guests and how he scolded us on all the things that we thought that we knew. So another day in the office. We had a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Doug Pau. He is a primary care internist who has been the director for student teaching for the Department of Medicine at the University of Washington since 1991. He's currently professor of medicine and the Rathman Family Foundation Endowed Chair for Patient-Centered Clinical Education. He teaches us why it's okay to drink alcohol while taking metronidazole, while it's okay to take some inspired medications, and why sinus headaches are really just migraines that can be treated with migraine medicines. Uh, without further ado, let's get to it. He he did a great job. It was, uh, it was a mythical performance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was fairly horrible, so I feel like it's in keeping. So congratulations. <laughs> Felix Stewart's here. Doug, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we've agreed to drop the formality, so we'll, we'll call you Doug from here on out. The audience, I don't think you've been on the show before, so can you can you give the audience a one-liner about yourself and maybe tell them a hobby or interest outside of medicine? Yeah, my name is uh, Doug Powell, and I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Washington. Uh, my great passion is teaching medical students. I've been the medicine clerkship director for over 30 years, uh, and I guess my favorite hobby is being a new grandfather, and uh, I'm got a very quirky and uh, not socially acceptable sense of humor. <laughs> You'll fit right in, and <laughs> congratulations on be, being a grandfather. Yeah, yeah, congrats on both. That's a better way to say it, Justin. I'll leave some room for my colleagues to ask you some questions. I feel like it's been a while since I've actually asked for a book recommendation. I feel like we usually gloss over this part. Um, and now that I have so much free time at home on my hands, I certainly load me up. So it doesn't even have to be a medical book, just any book that you think that someone might enjoy. If it's if it's directed towards physicians, all the better, but it doesn't have to be. I really like the book Being Mortal, and I know a lot of people have read it. I, I Being a, a general internist who's been in practice so many years and my patients have aged with me, I'm really seeing so much geriatrics and and just the idea of we all get older as well as myself getting older i i think it's a incredibly easy read and and just has some lessons that are really important for everybody yeah no great recommendation i like that he, everything he's written has been really good my other one that that maybe because you guys are all so young you may not have read it's uh uh the band played on by randy schultz it's about the early hiv epidemic uh 
back in those days where it was always called the AIDS epidemic. And uh, it's a very compelling, uh, and I think especially in this COVID age, I, I think it's a, a remarkable book. And I think it's a real page turner for, for people. Another top rack. These are good. I, uh, one of my favorite questions that we ask is always about the advice uh, question. Can you tell us a piece of advice that you received either as a learner or as a teacher or sometime throughout your career that others might benefit from? Yeah, I, I think it's the best advice I ever got is don't try to look good, be good. Um, you know, as somebody who works a lot with medical students, I think it's very hard in training and we always want to put our best foot forward and they're like, everybody's looking at us and watching us and, and grading us or evaluating us. And the point is, if you, if you go to your core and you do the best you can to be as good as you can and whatever you do in life, it will show as opposed to what is the external world going to look at me for? And, and I think that core value is huge. And, and I was taught that, and that was about the best piece of advice I've ever gotten. Awesome. I don't know that we're going to top that one. But before we move on to the the full show, Paul, did you want to give a pick of the week? I it's, I, I feel like I was surprised by this. Um, sure, did I, did I recommend the the, the Lagunitas um, hops refresher before? No, that's a new and fun one, especially since the weather's warming up. So, as you may or may not know, I love beer, but also don't drink alcohol, which is a terrible combination because most non or low alcoholic beer is just the worst stuff on the planet. But there is. Lagunitas, which makes uh, a really fantastic alcoholic beer, also makes a really good sort of non-alcoholic hops refresher. So if you're someone like me who likes beer but also doesn't want to be bothered with alcohol, it is uh, a delicious taste treat. So I'm going to recommend, rather than some weird movie, I think I'm going to recommend a non-alcoholic beer this week. So please to enjoy. Okay. Justin? I don't have one this week. Uh, I'll keep, keep the thing moving. Okay. All right. Let's, let's get into a case from Cashlack Memorial. Justin, I'll let you do the honors. All right. Well, actually, if you don't mind, Matt, I thought, you know, since um, we have Dr. Pow here, uh, we have Doug here who is going to talk a little bit about medical myths. And this was originally going to be um, at the ACP conference, which we are uh, not in attendance as originally planned due to uh, COVID. Uh, I was hoping to ask Doug if he could tell us a little bit about what are medical myths and why do they occur? Why are they so prevalent in medical practice? So I, I use the term medical myths for things that that they may not all be true mythical in the sense that they're, they're things we hear about that, that are absolutely not true or legendary, but, but without stuff. They may be something where there's evidence for another way, but it's you're trained in dogma that you only do things one way. So that's kind of the definition of it. Why do they occur? I, I think there are three things that I think about as far as why they occur. Um, the first one is thinking about physiology that makes just so much sense. In medical school, we may be taught something that is just pure physiology. It's clear. This is easy to learn. We got this. And sometimes in the body, there are more than one or two things at play and not things as simple as maybe we were taught in medical school. Another real common cause of medical myths are case reports that Case reports can get into journals based on, hey, I saw this, I want to alert the world about it. And they are incredibly helpful for us all to know that that possible things can be breaking and, and we need to know, you know, sort of breaking news. But case reports do not get the same scrutiny. They're certainly not the same as a randomized controlled trial. So they get into literature as truth, even though maybe they they really didn't show what they thought they sh showed. Um, 
The other one is just tradition, you know, the word of God, that this is the way it's been since the beginning of medicine. We never did randomized trials, but we've been doing this for so many years that this must be true. So those are kind of the boxes that, that most myths fall under. You know what struck me as I was prepping for this? A lot of the articles that that disprove some of these myths were like between 10 and 20 years old. <laughs> so <laughs> right. we're not exactly like, you know, quick quick to on the uptake, I should say. Absolutely. And 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 many are even older than that. Uh and uh and sometimes when I, I lecture on this, um I will get feedback before people hear the talk and they'll say, could you update the references? And it's like, well, the, you know, they proved this so many years ago. It's not like people keep going to reprove that it's yeah. not true. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it does, it takes, it is hard to adapt sometimes. Paul and I just did a recording yesterday talking about that atelectasis does not cause post-op fever. And that's been, <laughs> since like the mid-90s, easily Roundly you can find disproved. articles. <laughs> and I still, yeah. I, I literally have had people suggest that to me on rounds in the past year, still, that are that are in medical training, so that you would think they'd have more up-to-date information than me. But uh, what? I guess another category is a mnemonic where something fits nicely into. It's hard to get rid of that. So I think just the fact that wind is right there, like it's just hard to sort of shave that off. Yeah. Yeah. I hate the inertia too. Just like as an intern, when you're taught all so much information, it's tough to like critically analyze every pearl that you're taught that something just wind up getting stuck in there, even if there's not the evidence behind it. And when we start out, we want to have some rocks to hold on to, right? I mean, we, we, we are... We are a, a clean plate. We're a clean palate there. And we want to say, okay, this is an anchor. I got this. And we somebody tells us something and we learn it. It's hard to let go of that. Yeah. Well, so I'm excited to get in because I, I was impressed by some of these. These, these were, were great. So let's say uh, we're in Cashlack Clinic. It's a busy day. And your first patient's eagerly awaiting you in exam room four. Uh, Mr. S. O'Toole, he's a 32-year-old gentleman. He just got back from a bachelor party camping trip last week and was diagnosed with Giardia. There's no other medical issues. Uh, he's been prescribed metronidazole for the Giardia, but he's best man at his brother's wedding tomorrow, and he wants to know if he can drink. Classic dogma would say, no, you can't drink on metronidazole. Uh, what advice would you give him regarding alcohol use and metronidazole? So... I would just, uh, the short answer is I tell him, yes, he can have something to drink if he wants. Uh, I, I probably would encourage him not to get, you know, drunk to the point of, of passing out. But if he has a few drinks, that probably is, is very likely to be very safe for him. Uh, the dogma is on his prescription bottle for metronidazole. Uh, when he got it, there's a sticker on it that has a little martini glass with a slash through it. And so that is given by all pharmacists to this day and most most physicians will bring this up and discuss it with a patient or maybe the patient will read about it on the internet and then call the clinic and say is it really true that i can't drink and the vast majority of of medical providers will say that's true you can't have any alcohol when you are you are on metronidazole you know, so so we just tell him that what was that Lagunitas hop refresher, that's Paul? That's what, yeah, this is what I'm saying. <laughs> He's going to be stuck with Paul's alcoholic beer. <laughs> Maybe they could sponsor this episode, Paul. We will we'll reach out. Fingers crossed. Oh my God, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Get him to send you some cases. <laughs> yeah, so how long have we should we have known about this, uh, Doug? How long? So 
there has been questions about this since since the 90s when when looking at case reports of of uh, this potential interaction it found that you know you look at the case reports and they didn't really measure the things we want to measure they were basically the story of somebody was on metronidazole they drank alcohol and they threw up and got sick i've never seen that with anybody drinking alcohol before <laughs> or taking metronidazole for that matter right and it's like gee you combine two things that can make you puke and get diarrhea and feel like crap um and and so but it was all like yes we see this because it had gotten in there years before uh Back in the 50s, there was a thought that metronidazole, 50s and 60s, that metronidazole could cause a disulfuram-like reaction. Uh, and so that was accepted because we all knew what disulfuram was. It was something that was given uh, for patients that had alcohol alcoholism. And if they took the disulfuram and then they drank alcohol, they got sick. And if they took it, it would magically make them not crave alcohol because they didn't want to get sick. So once this link was made between metronidazole and disulfuram, it was accepted as dogma. And so these case reports came out of it just saying, yeah, we've seen this. And that just further cemented this, uh, this idea. And in I believe it was it was in the 2000s an article came out that was a really nicely done article but it was very small 12 very healthy volunteers um, rumored to be medical students just just FYI uh, who who were offered plenty of alcohol and uh, all 12 of them got alcohol half of them were given metronidazole for five days which was important beforehand the other were given placebo and then they all got the promised alcohol and their blood alcohol levels were measured all their symptoms were measured blood acid aldehyde levels were measured and lo and behold they found no difference between the groups who had been on the metronidazole for five days and the group that were, had been on placebo ahead of time so there were no no reactions whatsoever in 12 healthy volunteers. And that is the world's literature on actually challenging people. <laughs> so I just want to reverse and I, I just want to check in and find out how gullible I've been or exactly how happy I am to listen to authorities. So I just want to make sure I understand the disulfiram like reaction, which is fun to say and feels very satisfying and pathophysiologic. We just reverse engineered that from the fact that people threw up when they had uh, metronidazole and alcohol together, like no one actually studied whether or not it acted like disulfiram. Am I understanding that correctly? No, the earlier studies actually looked at, you know, this, uh, people thought, hey, you know, this seems, somebody uh, thought it was a good idea to look at. And then they looked at it like, could, di could metronidazole have the same effect as disulfiram to prevent people from drinking? And in those studies, they discredited that that it didn't appear to be something that was helpful at preventing people from drinking because it wasn't a side effect that that was like disulfiram but those studies got lost in the literature they they got forgotten about and didn't get pushed down more studies have happened since then in in rat models and rats are good to use for this because you don't have to get informed consent on them. <laughs> and they love to drink. <laughs> they, love to, they love to drink. They'll, they'll eat anything, right? Um, At least in so, Charlotte's Web would tell us they love to drink. <laughs> so in the rat models, they found that there was no inhibition of aldehyde dehydrogenase, which was the, the, the magic bullet that had said, well, this is what causes all of this. So that was known. So 
all of this started to fall apart before that small controlled study. So is there anything else that we need to know on this or is it just basically this is this is a myth uh don't don't worry about it you don't that's one less thing to counsel patients about when we're giving a metronidazole. The only thing I think about in this case that 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 you presented was that the issue is in a healthy person who doesn't have a lot of medical problems that's the group that was studied so I think in that case it is a myth if they have a few drinks they should be fine. Um the concern is how about people with so many other medical problems that group hasn't been studied and sort of an intriguing study in rats again was they didn't find that the blood acetaldehyde levels went up when people when rats took metronidazole and alcohol but they did find that the GI tract uh, acetaldehyde levels could go up with the idea that that bacteria can be selected for that are actually bacteria that can can uh, change the metabolism of alcohol a little bit. So the issues in the study they didn't find in the human study they didn't find any difference in blood alcohol levels or acetaldehyde levels. But could there be an issue actually within the gut that might make some people that are prone to this get a little more diarrhea? That's certainly a possibility that hasn't been ruled out. But to get back to your answer. Yes, I think for healthy individuals, having a drink when you're on metronidazole is okay. One other thing is a rumor, and I think from a very you know credible one, that it looks like on the next CDC uh, STD guidelines when they talk about metronidazole, things like BV and other other things, that they're going to remove the alcohol disclaimer. Awesome. End of an era. Yeah. <laughs> It only took I, 25 years. <laughs> my, my big takeaway is that if you are taking metronidazole, you can drink as much as you possibly want and will not get sick. And so I, I, yeah, I was going to say, great. we should be careful how we revise our counseling. Great. Well, we'll see how that works for you. <laughs> I, I think they gave the medical students like, well, they it was like one, what was it? It was four grams per kilogram or something like that. Or no, actually, don't quote me on that. I'm going to. How much was it? Grams. Point Point four. four grams per kilogram. I don't know what that is though. What so a hundred. So your standard hundred kilogram medical student got forty grams. I think a standard drink is around fourteen grams. So it's like that's around what th- three to four drinks. So, yeah. So their blood alcohols got over point one. That was kind of the you know they got them legally drunk or at least you know in trouble with the law if they were driving. So you know they got it up to a, a what would be considered by society a a intoxicated blood alcohol level. Okay, great. Okay, Justin, what, what do we have next here? All right, so our next patient, next room, uh, is Mitt Sarah Bottles. She's a 55-year-old female who's traveling internationally next month, and she wants to replace her emergency travel kit. Um, she has medications, including ciprofloxacin, uh, loperamide, and oxycodone in this emergency kit, and they've all expired. So she's asking if you would send a refill in so that she has these medicines on hand. So what do you do about this type of request? Are medications active after their expiration date? Do we need to replace them every time they expire? No, I w- first of all, these requests always come at the end of the visit, right? So, <laughs> so you're, you're, you've, you've spent all your time going through four medical problems and really counseling your patient. You're running five, five minutes late. And it's like, oh, by the way, one other thing I wanted to do today is get all my, my travel medicines or my emergency kit refilled. And that takes a few minutes. So that's always kind of a bummer. And I think the bottom line on this one is, 
you don't need to. These things are inert. They can they can be around for you know forever basically. And the important take home message, which I'll give before we go through the data, is that most of these are PRN drugs. These are not their most important medicine that they take every day. These are things for if they get diarrhea, if they get pain, if they get you know some other exotic weird symptom when they are away from home. So. The, you know, these, these, there's not much harm if these things dropped a little bit of efficacy. But interestingly, all the data is these things tend to be just fine for a long time. It seems like there's such a, uh, I, I, I think of this as like there, there's no incentive for this to be heavily studied because so many people are making lots of money by expired medications being thrown out and refilled. I don't know why the pharmaceutical companies would want to like fund fund any studies to 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 prove this so uh, that's what i've always thought and then i started to read more editorials on this stuff and the interesting thing is when all these things go bad including including in the warehouses for the pharmaceutical and they have to toss them and so I've always thought that's absolutely a correct assessment that like, why would anybody want to say this stuff's good for four years when you can get people refilling it every year, year and a half? But but uh, some pay, some folks that look at this say, well, it's a little more complicated than that. But I certainly don't think they fund the research on this. Uh, the research on this actually came from the military um, because... You know, the U.S. military has to stockpile lots of drugs for all sorts of occasions. And you can imagine the cost if every year and a half or two, two and a half years, you have to dump your stockpile of stuff that's unlikely to be used for a long time. So they were the funding source for the biggest study. The biggest study out there looked, I think it was like 3,000 lots of different medications, and they looked at when would it be 90%, you know, when would it drop under 90%? 90% potency is what's required by by the FDA for these medications. It doesn't mean do they work or not. It's just when do they drop below 90% potency. And so companies will just study at a year and a half. If they're above 90% potency, they'll say, we're good. Year and a half is good. But nobody looks at beyond that. So in this study, they looked at that and Surprisingly, they found that the majority of what they tested, almost everything they tested, had three to five years plus at 90%. And they tested a whole host of medications, antibiotics, uh, painkillers, most of the things you would probably find in a travel kit. So I feel like the clinician concern would be that you would lose efficacy. I feel like the patient concern, at least in my limited experience, is that they're worried that the drugs become instant poison. (laughs) <laughs> Once they're past their expiration date, so is is there are there any medications where we should worry about toxicity um, if they're sort of past the past the point of expiration? Um, nothing beyond the toxicity of the drug that a person will happily take anyway. I mean, you know, my you know, I, I have patients that want uh, they want like an oxycodone prescription because when they're hiking, you know, hiking on a you know fifteen thousand foot mountain peak and they break their ankle. Why not pop an oxycodone for the pain? I mean, that makes a lot of sense. But uh, no, the answer is no. Um, and where this came from is back in the 1970s, 60s, 70s, there was a formulation of tetracycline that would get toxic when it would break down over time and it could cause a Fanconi's syndrome. And that 
that formulation of tetracycline has been off the market since the late 70s, early 1980s, and no other, no other pill form drug have we found any toxicity uh, when they're expired as far as breaking down to something horrible. Should we exclude, I, I was reading from your slides, it looks like aspirin does break down. And then we, we, the classic one that I always tell patients about is once they open their sublingual nitroglycerin tablets, those ones seem to lose potency. Do, were those excluded from these from these recommendations that you know most meds are okay behest the expiration? Yeah, so the study you're talking about with the aspirin is a fascinating study where they 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 went way beyond what the the military looked at, which was let's look a few years after they found some boxes of of meds from 28 to 40 years before. <laughs> I mean, these are you know these are your grandparents' meds, you know, and they're. They found boxes in a pharmacy and they tested them and they were, they tended to be combo meds, drugs like Fioracet, Fioranol, um, these combo, you know, have multiple different drugs in them. Uh, and what they found was everything, even 40 years later, were, were at over 90% with the exception of aspirin and aspirin broke down to less than 1%. And the good news there is most times we use aspirin for a useful endeavor such as uh, for cardiovascular disease or something where we really need to have somebody on aspirin every day, it's unlikely they're going to be using really old aspirin. But I agree, aspirin is one you'd say, you know, if you need the aspirin and it's important to you, you should probably keep that fresh. Nitroglycerin is another one we've been taught, and it's, you know, we've always been taught if it doesn't sting or feel funny under your tongue, that's probably time to get new nitroglycerin. And I haven't seen I haven't seen a study on that. I, I, I honestly can tell you I didn't look, for, haven't looked for that one. But but uh, that's probably probably reasonable advice that if it's if it's not if you don't feel it, it may it may not be as potent. But that that will be something I'll put on my short list to look up. And the shorter term studies, not not the decades old ones, because I think that one looked at unopened sort of pristine medications. But the shorter term ones, they look at open packages as well. Can we extrapolate that? Because usually I have patients who I had a couple of these left around. It was expired, but I took them anyway. Not these emergency kit situations that we're talking about. Can you, can you extrapolate this to open medications? Well, the, the open only study I've seen where, where they've looked at that was an eye drop study. Um, and, and that's another topic that people always ask us because eye drops are, you know, they actually are more valuable than gold per weight. You know, they're so expensive and people don't want to have to toss their eye drops. And, and in the eye drop study, they looked at ones that had been, had the, uh, had been opened and, what, what, was it still effective 12 weeks after the expiration date of an opened eye drop? Uh, and it was uh, Travaprost, I believe, was what was being used. And they found that the lowering of eye pressures was equal in those of the opened expired eye drops compared to the nicely uh, still secured eye drops. But I, I haven't seen any studies of, of pill form with that. The other one that is just kind of left out there is epinephrine. Uh, and there was a study looking at physicians and you know, medical professionals who just, for this study, just gave their old epinephrine that was lying around the house, you know, EpiPens, or lying in their car, or in their office, or in their garage, wherever it may be, not not temperature controlled or anything. And they looked at, was epinephrine still effective? Uh, at least being in, they didn't do a, a test to see if it was truly effective. They, they measured uh, the amount of epinephrine that was still viable. And they found that at 40 months, many of these things still worked 
two other epi studies looked at about two and a half years, it seemed to be okay. But that's one that we're still a little nervous about because the outcome of bad epinephrine right. in somebody who needs it is a lot different than bad oxycodone, right? Right, for sure. Yeah. So <clears throat> as far as your as far as the epinephrine pens that are epi pens that are beyond expiration, we're not just recommending that patients patients like use those and feel like that they're they're safe. I, it's probably better than nothing if that's all you have and you're having anaphylaxis, but you'd still go to use it, go to an ER, but probably still keep your EpiPens up to date. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I, I think that I, I tell my patients, don't, don't toss those EpiPens. If you have four or five places, you know, you can put those in your backup places just, just so you have an EpiPen if you don't have your other one always with you. But, uh, yeah, we haven't gotten to the point where we feel comfortable saying it's fine to use all these expired EpiPens. I do think we will at some point be able yeah. to extend the expiration on those because of how expensive they are. But yeah, I tell people don't throw them away, but use them as a backup. And this came into question. It was like 2017 when the EpiPens made a huge jump in price over that like decade period. And then there was a research letter in the annals that was talking about these expired EpiPens. And I, I guess that's where, where people really started looking at it because it's it's not a trivial expense. If the medications are unopened, it seems like they, they can go way beyond the expiration date. For open medications, other than eye drops, we just really don't know. So if someone's got like lisinopril that's in the bottle they got from their pharmacy and had been open and they find it three years later, who knows? So I, I would personally, I would be a little hesitant to tell the patient with like advanced heart failure that, okay, that lisinopril is fine. But doc, uh, Doug, do you have any, any clear, clear guidance on that? That what, what do you tell people? I think that's a good point you made. We don't have a, We don't have data on that. So, you know, we would be, we would be extrapolating, um, okay. without data on that. And, and for anything that important, um, you know, I think that, I would advise a person probably to, to get, get a new prescription, especially if it's not going to be harmful uh, financially for them. The only exception might be in, in the cases where the person has found some old medications that they won't be able to pay for the prescription. And, you know, a good example of this might be if somebody's lost their insurance and they have like they got three-year-old Eliquis, for example, and they're going to say, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to be able to buy this, but, you know, I'd say, well, you probably should just go ahead and use what you've got until you can come up with money to buy a new prescription. That, that would, but it's not based on data. Right. Okay. Great. Does one of you guys want to give the next example, next case? No, I think if you wrote these names, I think that you should. All right. One I kind of wanted, I kind of wanted, I kind of wanted you to have to say it, Paul, but. Yeah, absolutely not. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Um, all right. So uh, your next patient is Alexa Payne. Uh, and she reports some frequent headaches over the past 12 months that include pressure pain on her forehead, under her eyes, and right over her cheeks, um, in her sinuses. She usually has some nasal congestion as well. She's not had any fevers or purulent discharge. Uh, and so I just wanted to talk about, is this a typical sinus headache? What is a sinus headache? And how should we treat this type of headache? This is super common for people to come in and say, you know, I got another sinus headache, and can you give me what, what works for me? A course of antibiotics, I'll take my decongestants, and I'll be okay in a couple of days. And these calls come into, uh, into doctor's offices all the time, um, requests from patients very frequently for this. And I, 
I think this patient probably has, and I think with a you know high probability, mig- a variant of migraine headache and not a sinus headache, and that recurrent sinus headaches, if they exist at all, are quite rare. Um, that's a, you know the headache experts certainly believe that, and that this is very likely a migraine headache, and we should be treating it like a migraine headache. I have to confess, this was totally not really on my radar as as a myth that was out there. And I'm just thinking back, uh, I, I, I noticed again in your slides that the patients complaining of sinus problems, maybe they're not even complaining of the headache as much. They're just complaining of kind of discomfort in this in that region and not calling it a headache. And I wonder if I how many of these patients I've missed or I should have trialed like a migraine medication migraine. to see if to see if that relieved their symptoms. This I was embarrassed when I was reading this. And the delay in diagnosis that you quoted was seven years or more, something like that. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So there's one study that looked at at individuals who had these types of sinus headaches who ended up with migraine and it was a, it was a long delay, seven years. And, and that's, that's not uncommon because this one, the, the studies that, that really address this came out in the two thousands, I think like 2004, 2006 were some of the studies. And this just hasn't made mainstream primary care headache information. It just, this one has really dodged it. And when I, when I talk about myths and present these for audience response, only about 20% of people will pick migraine headache. Most people pick sinus headache. And, uh, and so I, I think commercials for years showed throbbing sinuses causing pain. Our patients tell us it's their sinuses. We've all had our sinuses kind of ache when we had a cold or something. So it all makes sense. These headaches must be coming from the sinuses. What is actually happening with these migraine headaches is that the uh, trigeminal nerve, one of the divisions, is getting impacted, and that provides sensation to the sinuses. So the feeling is in those sinuses. So people, it really is a sinus pain, but it's just not happening from a sinus infection. The other thing that is striking in these studies is that People can have bilateral sinus pressure and pain, and we don't think of that with migraine, right? We, we think of unilateral. That's one of our key migraine things. And for this variant, it's not uncommon that we'll be bilateral. So that throws us off, too, with the diagnosis. And so it sounds like, you know, with these cases that come in with sinusitis, it seemed like sinusitis, but not um, an actual infection treating like a normal, typical migraine might actually be more effective. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so the, the, the pearl here is if it's recurrent, people say, you know, a couple times a year I get these sinus infections or three or four times a year, or my goodness, this has been a bad few months. I'm having one a month. That strongly suggests migraine. Hmm. If somebody comes in for the first time ever and they're 35 years old and they have a fever and they have chills and their sinuses hurt like heck, they may have a bacterial sinusitis. That's certainly a really bad pain with that would, would not be an unreasonable thing to, to think about as a diagnosis, but it's this repeat, this repetitiveness that happens in so many people like, yeah, a couple times a year, I get this sinus headache and people with migraine headaches, other formats can get this too. So they may have typical migraines, but they just need to know to try their migraine meds when they get one of these too. So there can be an overlap between already diagnosed migraines, but they still get their antibiotics and decongestants when they come to the 
physician with this set of symptoms. Hmm. One study looked at let's just treat these people like they have migraine and what happens. And so in, in that study, and, and there's some fascinating stuff about the study. So they recruited roughly 50 patients and they had a big dropout rate. And, and what they did initially was they said, okay, everybody who is self-diagnosed, physician diagnosed, sinus headaches, we are going to CAT scan you and do endoscopy of your sinuses to see if you really have anything going on there. You know, they wanted to do it well and make sure that they weren't just throwing everybody into one kettle. So they did that. And, and, you know, the group that they did all had good looking sinuses. And the next step was they're going to treat these with migraine related directed therapy, mostly triptans were their first line. And they had a big fall dropout rate because those people were angry <laughs> that, you know, you don't get it. I have sinus headaches. What kind of whack jobs are you people? And so I thought that was pretty interesting. And so it wasn't, the dropout wasn't because of failures. It was because before they even got to the, you know, medication arm of this, they were, you know, these patients were told they didn't have sinus headaches, that they, that they wanted to treat them for migraine because they didn't have true sinus headaches. And so, but anyway, the, the brave people who actually went through with this, they had a 92% effectiveness of migraine directed therapy with the majority of them responding to triptans in the 80s. So I would take away from that, you got to be gentle when you are suggesting to a patient that maybe it's not all just the sinuses, maybe there is uh, migraine migraine contributing to this as well. I Sometimes sometimes people are are hesitant to let go of a diagnosis that they've been given. That's great advice. I think gently saying, hey, let this happens to you all the time. And you always have to come in here. Let's try a different approach this time. And then you'll have everything ready at home. And let's just give this a try together. Yes. Instead of saying, you've been wrong all these years and you've yeah. led me astray telling me you had sinus headaches. I think, you know, it's interesting too. I think a lot of the patients I see come in, not necessarily calling it sinus headaches, but do call it sinusitis or do have, or I call it sinusitis without a bacterial infection. And maybe even changing that term to say sinus headache, we're going to give you a headache medicine. There might be a little bit more of a connection. Because I a lot of times, oh, you have sinusitis, your sinuses are inflamed, but it's not bacteria, so no antibiotic. Have a nice day. And I think that causes some frustration for sure. Probably because I am missing their migraine headache, but also because. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking how many patients I had on maxed out on nasal topical nasal therapy and right. having them use a neti pod and all these things that yeah. I'm trying to do to, I I've seen patients on, on steroids for, I, I haven't done it, but sometimes the patients will be hitting up the ENT constantly and they end up on steroids. And I wonder if that's treating steroids, treating their yeah. migraine <laughs> rather than actually, ra rather than actually the sinusitis. Yeah. Yeah, I'm encouraged that you would try the abortive therapy first, which I guess makes sense, because I think the other thing is that treating chronic sinusitis, it, the, the interventions tend to be largely benign, unless you're going down the steroid route or sort of blasting people with antibiotics all the time. It's a little bit of intranasal steroids and a second-generation antihistamine. Like, you can feel good about yourself because the patient, you're probably not hurting them, at least. Whereas some of the the chronic, I think, the, the prophylaxis specifically, all those medications uh, confer some degree of side effects. But if you're starting with abortive therapy, uh, empirically and see if that makes a difference. That actually, that seems like a reasonable approach if you're, if you're not quite sure what you're dealing with. The, the reason these folks come in so set in their ways that, that they have sinus headaches is, you know, the natural history of a migraine is it's going to, it may go away in a day. It may go away in two days. So they take the antibiotics, they take the decongestants and they get better. 
just because right. the migraine's gone away uh, if they don't get unlucky and then have a, a long run of migraines. But these things are, are, you know, they're good reasons that the patients feel strongly about getting their treatments. All right. So I think we've kind of reached consensus on this. Basically, we'll be a little bit, we'll gingerly tell the patient that a, a headache may be contributing to their sinus symptoms and maybe a migraine specific therapy like a triptan could uh, could help them. And then th- that should act pretty quickly. So we we could potentially, let's let's do better than this whole seven years to diagnose this. Uh, we'll, we'll make a pact with the audience, Justin. Uh, I like it. We can, every time we see sinusitis, we can prescribe sumatriptan. And when they get the accurate diagnosis <laughs> seven years later, they can take the expired medicine safely and it'll be fine. There you go. Way to tie it all together. I think we have one more case left, Justin. And uh, I, uh, as, as with Paul, I refuse to say this name. Great. Uh, so Mr. Tom Falange cuts his finger on a glass jar today. I'm sorry. I feel like you went over that last name pretty quickly. So this is, I mean, where's our patient again? Uh, Mr. Tom Falange. He's a ah, wonderful you. gentleman. He's a big contributor to the clinic. He's uh, uh, just a lovely human being. He comes to the clinic. He has uh, needs to have some sutures on his right ring finger. Uh, and he uh, needs, uh, needs the procedure. So in your clinic, which you're capable of doing the stitching, uh, what would you recommend as far as anesthesia to prepare the patient locally for the repair? Uh, we ha- do we have to avoid epinephrine because it causes digit in, uh, infarction? That's what I remember learning in med school. So no epinephrine, no xylocaine. Um, we, can't, uh, we can't inject it there. It's uh, just an anesthetic. Is that correct? No, I actually think the, probably the best thing here would be to give this person with lidocaine with epinephrine uh, because the person's bleeding. It's going to decrease the amount of bleeding. It's going to decrease the need for a digital tourniquet to control bleeding. And it's just going to make it a lot easier for you to be able to see without blood everywhere. And uh, But certainly the dogma is, and I was certainly taught as a medical student on my emergency medicine rotation, Whatever you do, do not inject epinephrine in the fingers, the toes. Do not do it on the ears. Do not do it in the genitalia. It was, it was these are, are end arterial areas where you could end up getting ischemia and, God forbid, necrosis. That was the dogma that I was taught. Yeah, I, I, I've heard similar. So uh, what's the evidence or, you know, what's the, what's the actual evidence behind that? Is there, is there good evidence? So there was not really ever good evidence behind the uh, ischemia piece with this. Uh, Going back and digging back, recently I went digging back into the really old literature, the 40s, and what it looks like happened in those days is that that the epinephrine was mixed with a, a bicarbonate that had that really changed the pH of the area. So if there were case, the case reports that were there really didn't have anything to do with the epinephrine. It had to do with other things that could affect the tissue. Um, subsequently, there just weren't cases in the medical literature of, of epinephrine over the last number of years being an issue with causing necrosis, causing bad ischemia. And you know there was an occasional crush injury where the whole hand and fingers got destroyed and crushed and there was some ischemia. But there really wasn't anything where that you could track down epinephrine as as the real cause. So that goes. This was a case report, sort of tradition, word of God type of thing. And then in about I think it was about 20 years ago, there was actually a randomized controlled study uh, 
of 60 patients. They were randomized to get lidocaine with epinephrine or just lidocaine alone for uh, preparation for suturing in the hands. And the group that got the lidocaine with epi actually did a little bit better. They needed less digital tourniquet and the complications both occurred in the in the lidocaine alone group. They're not statistically significant as far as complications, but it appeared they were both safe. Um, so that was a nice randomized controlled study, but it was only 60 patients. What's far more compelling is what do the experts do? The hand surgeons, there's a study that was published, uh, I believe in 2006, that looked at hand surgeons from 2002 to 2004. And in over 3,000 cases of hand surgery where they injected epinephrine as their standard thing that they would use with their with uh, with their bupivacaine or lidocaine, they had no episodes of digital ischemia and nobody needed fentolamine to reverse the effect of the epinephrine. So that is really the standard of care among hand surgeons. And I've been contacted when I wrote this up, I was contacted by podiatrists who said, we've been doing this forever. And I found a study from the 1970s by a podiatrist who wrote about his whole career because he'd been injecting lidocaine with epinephrine his whole career and they'd never had a complication. Uh, and he said, this is what we do. And, and they talked about the myth in the 70s, but this did not make mainstream uh, medical teaching, obviously. The podiatry journals are very uh, underrepresented. The podiatry journals really don't get the dissemination they should. This guy knew all along. It's been, <laughs> I can't do the math, but it's been a long time, Paul, more than 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> he was ahead of his time, uh, yeah. this guy This guy from the 70s. And and uh, uh, if, if for fun, you, you folks all should pick an article from the 60s, 50s, or 40s. Just read it because it's, it's just like they're in a bar talking, you know, it's like all the formality of our studies now. It's like, it's just a bunch of people saying, we did this because it seems stupid not to, you know, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's really kind of refreshing in some ways to see people just try to say, I'm going to just get info there. So it's refreshing. It's, it's people are just writing about what they thought and what they did to share that information. And, but anyway, do that as just a fun thing to do. And, and for all listeners, just if you just want to grin, find a really old article and just read it just to say things have changed in the way we formally share information now. That's great advice. I, I would totally agree. In my limited experience reading older studies, it's it's more this narrative prose and it's it's not in this very sterilized format that we we have now. Uh, so it is nice to th throw some of those references into any talks that you're giving. Was it was it the Hyde syndrome with the erysinosis and the the GI bleeding? Like if you read the original letter, it was just sort of like anybody else notice this weird thing that happens? <laughs> like it wasn't like a randomized control study. It was just like these patients have this also seem to bleed a lot. That's funny. And like he got an epidemic out of it. So good for him. Like I'm sure it was smarter than that, but it was fairly conversational. <laughs> Well, I have one, oh, go I ahead. Have another, <clears throat> you just reminded me of another great piece of advice. If you're going to get an eponym named after you, make sure it's not something horrible. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is you guys, you will, some, one of you three will probably get an eponym named after you, but just make sure it's something that's not incredibly horrible. Okay. It's going to for sure be some sort of cognitive bias or some sort of other you know, <laughs> like clinical reasoning problem. It'll be like the Williams flaw or the. <laughs> the <laughs> All right. Well, I always wanted to have a a tumor named after me that leaked troponin, so that anytime there was a troponin 
elevation. It could be Birch's tumor. You know, I don't know. <laughs> could be demand, could be a type one, but Birch's tumor's on the list. Amazing. I, I wish our audience would really make that happen. Uh, let's just start calling that any troponin leak that's not an ACS, we'll call it Birch's tumor. It might yeah. be Birch's tumor. Type <laughs> six in mind. Well, with that, I think this is a great place to ask uh, Doug if you have any take-home points, and then we'll have to let you go because I know we're we're recording in the daytime here and everyone's got to get back to work or kids might be busting in into my recording studio. Okay. So just to recap what we've talked about today. So for healthy individuals who are on metronidazole, if they want to drink of alcohol, they can go ahead and do that and, uh, and feel pretty safe in doing that. Expired medications, uh, pill forms that are past their expiration date, uh, are generally going to be fine to take. Uh, and especially, uh, antibiotics, painkillers should be okay for years past their expiration date. And think sinus headaches equal migraine headaches. Okay. Uh, Doug, thank you so much. This was, this was really fun. Uh, hopefully you're safe out there in Washington state and, uh, you're, you'll get some medical students joining you again in the near future. Yep. They're coming, uh, June 27. So we can't wait. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. But to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Manchu on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And before we go, we should give special thanks to Stuart for composing our excellent theme music and as well as to Claire Morgan of Not Only for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.